Hey everyone. Before we get started, I wanted to say a few things. First, thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for continuing to listen. Thank you for sticking with the show during this long hiatus. I can't tell you what it means to me. I also wanted to say that this is the fourth or fifth time that I've recorded this intro. As all of you know, at the beginning of most shows, I like to provide a list of organizations or nonprofit groups or charities that are doing good work and that need support. Only now, every time I record this intro, the next day something else has happened. There's been another shooting. There's been another white supremacy rally. There's been a young woman abducted and murdered on her way to prayers at her mosque. There's been news cycle after news cycle about the disgrace that currently occupies the White House and oozing corruption and hatred and divisiveness into the culture and the zeitgeist, empowering those who have hidden in the shadows, been marginalized because of their hateful, bigoted, racist ideas. Enemies we thought we'd defeated a long time ago have gained strength again because of who was elected president. And there's news every day about the protections that have been in place to take care of and protect the lowest among us, to protect the poor, to protect women, to protect education, to protect the needy, to protect children, to protect those who can't protect themselves. Isn't that what government is all about? All of those protections are being stripped away by, frankly, gleeful men who seek to line their pockets and the pockets of the rich and powerful all at our expense. It just goes on and on, and it's impossible to keep up. It's impossible to have a complete list of everything in need. So go to the website, findyourgods.com, and check out the show notes. You'll see a list of organizations that could use your help and also ways to contact your representatives in government and ask them to change the course that the country is currently on. Oh, one last thing I wanted to say to you. I've missed you. Now, 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 now shall I tell of things that change? New being, new being out of old. Since, Since you, O oh gods, oh gods, oh gods, created mutable created mutable arts created mutable arts and gifts arts and gifts give me the voice the voice give me the voice the voice to tell the shifting shifting the shifting story of the world And we're back. Once again, thank you for listening. 
Thank you for sticking with the show, especially during this long hiatus. I know I kind of left you hanging after episode 9, right in the middle of the story of Orpheus. I'll make it up to you, I promise. Suffice it to say that sometimes real life intrudes and it becomes more and more difficult to do the things that you want to do because of things that are happening that are out of your control. Sometimes it's gradual. One event leads to another event, leads to another event. Sometimes it's like someone shutting off a light, but the next thing you know, you're walking through the valley. And I don't mean the San Fernando Valley. I mean the dark valley, the one that we all pass through from time to time, where every day seems like you're not moving forward at all. You're stuck in the same place. Everything is dark and you don't know how long it will take to get out or even if you will get out. And when you finally do see a glimmer of light, when you finally do manage to make your way out of the shadow, and escape that valley that you've been in for so long, you're not back to normal. You're not unchanged. Part of you is still back there. You've lost a little bit of yourself along the way. And you don't necessarily know if you're going to be able to find it again. When Orpheus returned from the underworld, he returned alone. All of his confidence and bravado, his demigod entitlement completely stripped away. I imagine it must have been a shattering blow to his ego, if not his psyche. Not only had he lost his wife, but he'd failed himself on any number of levels as well. He had survivor's guilt to contend with, plus the I-should-have-been-there guilt from his wedding day, and then his failure to see the course through, to pass the test, to beat the challenge that Hades had set in front of him. I mean, up until that point, he had managed to do any number of impossible things. He made it to the underworld, past the toll gates and pitfalls that would have beaten anyone else. He'd brought the kingdom of Hades and Persephone to a standstill, poured sand, into the relentless machinery of the underworld, silenced the mutterings of the dead, moved the furies to tears. There's no precedent for any of that. And then, on top of it all, he'd touched the heart of Hades, at least according to some. Some say he'd only managed to reach Persephone, and then she'd interceded with her husband, but still, either way, 
I know I've been rough on the guy, but that's an amazing set of achievements, and honestly, who wouldn't be a little cocky with all of that on his resume? In addition to being the son of Apollo and the muse Calliope, being one of the famed and fabled Argonauts, being the greatest musician in the world? Oh yeah, he also conquered the land of the dead. With all of that on your resume, it would take a special kind of person to not be overconfident. But still, that's... That's a big height to fall from, and Orpheus fell hard. He failed upwards, if you will, all the way back to the upper world. Whatever his pedigree, capabilities, and ego had been built upon, it all came crashing down when he returned from the underworld. He had returned from the land of the dead, but not all of him. Part of him didn't make it back. The part of him that defined who he was, that was gone. As dead as his wife. According to Ovid, Orpheus did try to return to the underworld, though it's unclear what his intent was. Did he want a second chance at the rescue? Was he looking for a best two out of three bargain from Hades, the god of last chances? Did he think that he might be able to hurry and catch his wife before she made the long trip back, abducting her from the underworld in some kind of strange parody of Korra's abduction from the world above by Hades? Or did he simply hope to join her there, adding one more to the ranks of the newly dead? To that last point, I think we already have an answer. As we touched on briefly in our last episode, not all of the ancient writers held Orpheus in high regard. Virgil, in particular, does not seem particularly impressed. He calls the youth a coward. Presumably for not following through on his threat made before the thrones of Hades and Persephone, the threat to join his wife in death if she would not be allowed to return to the world of the living. How did Orpheus put it? You can rejoice in a double destruction. And yet, when the time came, Orpheus lacked the will to take the plunge. Or maybe it simply never occurred to him to do so. He missed his chance twice, actually. First, when his wife died in his arms on their wedding day. He could have followed her, but he didn't. Second, when he botched her rescue from the underworld, tripped up by his own hubris. Both times, he could have followed her, been reunited with his lost love, but he just didn't. I'm talking about suicide here, and I don't mean to be flippant about it. The attitude toward suicide in the ancient world was quite different from what we hold today. In Rome, it was not a legal issue. No law existed prohibiting it, though that could have just as likely been for practical reasons. It's a hard crime to police and punish. Perhaps they figured they'd just leave it to the gods. In fact, if a Roman citizen desired to end their life, they could formally request the leave of the Senate to do so. If approved, 
Hemlock was the preferred method and provided by the state for the task at hand. Now, hemlock is a flowering plant found throughout Europe and North Africa. It's actually in the carrot family, and I know this because I use Wikipedia. The Latin name for it is conium maculate, which comes from the Greek word koans, which means to whirl or spin. Apparently, dizziness and vertigo are some of the symptoms you get when you take hemlock. Also, you die. Hemlock disrupts the central nervous system, shutting down the neuromuscular junction, which results in a slow, ascending muscular paralysis. From your feet to the crown of your head, you feel it take hold of you, until eventually the respiratory muscles shut down. You die by degrees, slowly. In Rome, soldiers and businessmen were not permitted to take that bitter path, though that again was a pragmatic reality based on political and economic impact. Likewise, those convicted of capital crimes were also not permitted to end their life. Again, however, as it is today, it really came down to how determined someone was to take the plunge. Romans and the Greeks saw suicide as a means to avoid or atone for dishonor. It was seen as respectable, making that choice. For example, Cato the Younger took his life after the forces of Pompey fell. In the eyes of Rome, his death was seen as virtuous and redeeming. Now, contrast that with Mark Antony trapped in Alexandria by the approaching forces of Octavian. Antony chose suicide over escape or surrender. But whether he took his life to escape capture, trial, and execution for betraying Rome, or if he did it as a gesture of devotion to his lover Cleopatra, whom he mistakenly believed had gone ahead on the journey to the afterlife by taking her own life, Who's to say? To that last point, it's my understanding that, for the most part, Romans did not hold Anthony's sacrifice in high regard because it was done for love. Suicide was an option for Orpheus, but for whatever reason, he chose not to go down that path. Whether he was a coward, as Virgil would have it, or feared the stigma of dying for love, or maybe he was simply too self-involved for it even to occur to him. You know, maybe he didn't want to give up who he was, all of his fame. Who knows? What we do know is that Orpheus remained on earth, among the living. And whether or not he was haunted by his oath before the thrones, who's to say? If anything, he seems to have made some attempts to either atone for his pride and failure or maintain a commitment to the memory of his wife. Or perhaps he just wanted to prevent himself from ever being hurt by love again because, see, Orpheus turned his back. On women. 
Who knows why? Maybe he loved Eurydice so much that he knew no other woman could ever take her place. I can understand that sentiment. My wife is the hub of my world, and God forbid, should misfortune ever take her from me, I cannot imagine the circumstances in which I would want another relationship afterwards. I'd rather be alone than not be with her. So maybe that's part of what was going on with Orpheus. There are some who suggest that his decision was a bit more vindictive, that he turned away from women because of their inconstancy and unfaithfulness, which is kind of ironic, if true, as it was his inconstancy, his lack of faith in his wife that failed. It wasn't her failure. She remained steadfast and true. But even so, there's still an arrogance there. It lines up with what we already know about him. He's the sort of guy who would say, fine, I'm taking my balls and going home. I won't let any woman have me. We don't know if there was a long line of applicants for the job anyway. Of course, some authors say that many, many women burned to have him, but Orpheus rejected them all. Some say he rejected society as well, completely, at least for a time. At first, he spent all of his time alone in the wilderness, using his music to commune with the natural world the trees, the stones, the animals and flowers, but eventually he came back. Because some other scholars and authors, in fact, all other scholars and authors, say that while Orpheus turned his back on the company and comfort of women, he did not lead a life chaste and celibate from the pleasures of the flesh. As a side note, the word celibacy is kind of interesting. It comes from Latin, the word meaning the state of being unmarried, and the root word literally means alone living, which lines up not at all with the typical usage of the word, which these days means abstaining from sexual activity, usually by choice. Not that either applies to Orpheus, though. He was neither alone nor sexless. Now, as Ovid and others tell it, Orpheus was the first among the Thracians to indulge in that practice in which a man might sample the flesh of younger males before adolescence, those first flowers that have not yet fully bloomed. Now, this leads us into complicated territory. So, I want to try and be as clear as possible about what I understand the attitudes and practices in the ancient world were as it relates to this particular topic. To begin with, homosexuality in its most straightforward contemporary definition, that is, two men or two women involved in a loving and equal relationship, this was deeply and officially frowned upon in Roman culture. In the Roman world, as I understand it, the household was the most important unit in society, and the relationship between the husband and wife was the hub of that unit, and therefore the hub of Roman society and culture. A husband might have a mistress. 
he might partake of the pleasures of one of his slaves or visit a prostitute, and there was little or no censure for his actions unless you were his wife and found out. While not officially condoned, it was behavior that was more or less widely accepted. What was not accepted, however, was when a man sought those same pleasures with another man, regardless of his station or standing. In fact, male prostitution was an official crime punishable by death. Female prostitution, of course, was not. As I understand it, the reason for all of this came down to the perceived sanctity of marriage, or the importance of the male-female relationship in producing children and thereby contributing to the overall strength of the republic. Two men in a relationship don't produce children. They don't have any value to the state. But I think it goes deeper than that. Though those things were certainly factors and considerations, the disdain with which homosexuality was viewed in Rome came down to one simple concept. Power. Specifically, the power of men. Not surprisingly, the authority and power structure in Rome was a masculine one. If the husband-wife relationship was the hub of Roman society, then the man was the axle upon which it spun. The Roman ideal of man was someone in control, in control of his life, his family, his career, his impulses, and his desires. To give up that control, even for love, was considered a personal failure and a point of shame. As with many, let's be honest, with most other societies and cultures, in Rome, the flashpoint for those tensions was in the bedroom. From the Roman perspective, a man might indulge in any number of sexual improprieties, so long as he retained the dominant position, physically as well as emotionally. For a man to assume and prefer or enjoy the submissive position, particularly sexually, that was unacceptable. He was essentially making himself a woman, Hence the prohibition against male prostitution. In that scenario, a man, whether the john or the prostitute, would be engaged in a submissive and therefore degrading act. If I try to extrapolate from this, I assume that it's more cultural and social prejudice than religious. I don't have any strong basis for that opinion, but I do know that religion did not have the same weight in public policy as it does, for instance, in the U.S. today. In ancient Rome, they kept it separate. And there was no religious stigma against homosexuality that I could find, despite the political, legal, and social ones. It seems to me that, again, if the household was seen as the cornerstone of Roman society and structure, and the familial relationship of husband and wife was the cornerstone of the household, and therefore the cornerstone of Rome, and the man was the point of strength and dominance in that foundation, then the man was, in essence, the embodiment of Rome. He was an avatar of the Republic, if you will. So to engage in any activity which debased yourself as a man was, by extension, a homeopathic symbolic debasement of the Republic as a whole, in essence, 
a betrayal of your own masculinity, the very essence of who you are by virtue of the fact that that is expected of you, well, that was a betrayal not only of yourself, but of the empire. As above, so below, and vice versa, tops and bottoms. As I said, I don't see anything to suggest that there's a religious or even moral component here. It's purely secular, uh, political even. If there is a religious perspective on all this, it didn't come up in any of my research. In fact, what there is are numerous stories in which the gods and demigods consort with mortals of both sexes. But even the gods don't seem to be above the cultural norms of their worshipers. In most, if not all cases, when a male god takes a male mortal as a lover, or, as is sometimes the case, the god fixates on a male mortal in a romantic or lustful way, the mortal is almost always a youth. So a kind of power structure is still preserved regardless. The god always has power and dominance, first by virtue of being a god, second by virtue of being older than the younger mortal. And the mortal always plays a subservient, submissive role. Hence the age discrepancy, which mirrors the teacher-apprentice relationship that Orpheus and, by some accounts, everyone else in his cult followed. When you pluck those first flowers, you are in control. In the cases where the god is overtaken with love or lust for a mortal and gives in to these impulses, in a way, giving up masculine control, there's always a tragic outcome. For example, in the story of Apollo's obsession with Hyacinth. It's tragic, but never for the god, of course. The loss of the object of their obsession is the punishment. Their suffering is invariably the whole point of the story. At least that's how it typically plays out in Ovid. The mortal dies, the god mourns, and our sympathy is meant to be with the god for their loss. The mortal's death is a byproduct of the god losing control. There's a similar dynamic at work in the loss of Eurydice. Orpheus's romance leads to tragic circumstance, and it is his loss and suffering that Ovid and the others focus on. Now, there's another difficult point of discussion and contention with Orpheus's institution of pederasty as a replacement for his wife. In that relationship, he maintains the power dominance. Though it isn't entirely approved and often frowned upon, it doesn't instigate the widespread rejection and scorn that an equal or submissive homosexual relationship almost certainly would have had in Rome. By going after the young, Orpheus maintains dominance and power, and his own prestige. I want to take a moment again to reiterate that when I discuss or report on an ancient attitude or cultural norm, I'm not necessarily agreeing with it or promoting it. That being said, I don't impose nor do I possess any negative personal attitudes towards homosexuality. To my mind, 
human sexuality is rich, complex, and not nearly as easily classified into a binary state that so many people seem to want to impose on the world. However, I believe that there are boundaries. Consent is obviously one of them. Informed consent, dare I say, mature consent. But to be honest, the ambiguity of, again, a term like pederasty, in the context of this story, makes me uncomfortable. I don't know where the boundary was with Orpheus. The texts are unclear, and the dictionary definition of the term is no help. Pederasty is the sexual relationship between a man and a boy. Full stop. That's literally what the word means. Pedo meaning boy, and erastes meaning eros, or love. Specifically physical love. And if we keep chasing the etymological rabbit for a bit longer, the word boy comes from an ancient term for servant or slave, though some dispute this. Regardless, so... Obviously, the question here is, how old is the boy? I've done my research. Honestly, I don't have an answer to the question. But I can tell you that in the same way that the idea of a 13-year-old girl being married off to an older man in order to cover up an early pregnancy is distasteful on face value, It's equally distasteful to think of a broken-down former rock star whose wife has passed away, and now he finds solace and satisfaction in the flesh of young boys. And it's still problematic if you recognize that that same 13-year-old girl is named Mary, and her child is going to be Galilee's biggest claim to fame. It's problematic if you recognize that the old rock star is Orpheus, son of Apollo. Both of them are wrong by today's standards. And in some cultures, they were wrong by yesterday's standards. In my reading, there is a suggestion that throughout the history of Greece and Rome, an older man engaging in shall we say, a dominant relationship with a submissive, though perhaps not always willingly so, younger boy, while not entirely approved of in polite circles, wasn't entirely frowned upon either. My understanding is it was fairly common. Teacher, apprentice. More often than not, in the accounts I've seen, the man was a mentor, a teacher, a sponsor, Take, for instance, the stories about Gaius Julius Caesar and Octavian, for instance. On some level, that relationship becomes transactional. The man is giving his guidance and teaching and sponsorship in exchange for those first flowers, not yet in bloom. And again, it all comes down once again to the concept of power. Specifically, male power. According to Ovid, Orpheus fled from the love of women. And I can't help but note that the word fled implies on some level fear. So it's worth asking again, what might Orpheus be afraid of? Well, 
Being hurt again is certainly a possibility, perhaps even the most likely understandable one. To be in love requires, to some small degree, on some level, an abdication of control, of power. Every lover is the fool on the cliff, stepping off into the sunlight full of faith, while the waves crash below him, as Romeo says, I take thee at thy word. That is, love forces us to admit that someone else is, on some level, wielding a considerable degree of power over our happiness, if not our life. So, was it from this that Orpheus fled, once burned, twice shy? Perhaps. And perhaps it was the love of those first flowers offering both physical pleasure as well as a degree of control, of power. All of that represented for Orpheus, perhaps, the best of both worlds, so to speak. He could have power and control and also get a little action as well. And maybe those young boys, and let's be clear, it's not certain if he was involved with more than one person at any given time, or if he was more of what we might call today a serial pederast, trading in his lovers when they got too old. Maybe those boys gave him something else that he needed. Before his marriage and the subsequent tragedy, Orpheus had enjoyed a fame in the ancient world that rivaled the mightiest of monarchs, heroes, and even gods. But broken by his misadventures in the underworld, Orpheus returned with a diminished ego and psyche. Retreating from the human society where he'd enjoyed such fame, he sought out a more natural, even indifferent, society among the trees and animals and stones and birds. A society upon which, with his music, he could begin to exert some control once more. Put it another way, he went back to his roots. Maybe it was to hide his failure and shame. Maybe he was just trying to regain some connection to what he had lost. Maybe he wanted to commune with the natural world because that was where he had originally met his wife. Again, regardless of the reason, he was just trying to reassert control over his crumbled life. No one can blame him for this. We all mourn, and we each mourn in our own way, but for how long? It isn't clear when exactly Orpheus first resumed his romantic life once more, but we know it wasn't with a woman. And maybe those younger, inexperienced lovers, again, the first flowers of manhood's spring, maybe they gave him more than comfort and pleasure. Maybe they gave him a way to recapture an audience again, to be the rock star once more. There's some scholarship to back this up, actually. Remember that many of the ancient writers considered Orpheus to be an historical figure, not merely a character from a story. 
No, they saw him as a real person, as real as any other person in history, and this wasn't simply based on the popularity of his myth. All around them, they could see the signs of a long, rich history that, by all accounts, originated with Orpheus. They could see the signs of the cult of Orphism. Orphism was a mystery religion that gained intense and widespread popularity in the ancient world. And, as you might guess from the name, the cult was said to have been founded by Orpheus himself at some point after he returned from the underworld. The question as to whether Orpheus was a god or demigod around whom this cult grew, or was he merely a man who had godlike status conferred upon him later due to his popularity with a cult, it's hard to say. Was he a man who became a myth? Or a myth that became a religion? Either way, as a side note, I should say that I know that there are some in the academic world who dispute the existence of an Orphic mystery cult completely. Based on my research, they seem to be mightily outnumbered, so I'm going with the assumption that the cult did actually exist. Also, it makes for a more interesting episode. At least for me. So there. Orphism was secret and selective. The cult didn't engage in any form of proselytizing or evangelism. You couldn't join the cult just by showing up, as with other religions. No, you had to be chosen, sponsored, and initiated, like Fight Club. Initiation was highly secretive and limited only to men. Orphics followed an ascetic lifestyle, and they were said to eschew all worldly pleasures, which contradicts to some degree the information we have about Orpheus and his predilections. At least, unless you consider the possibility that his cult was made up of those first flowers. Young boys, eager for a mentor and a teacher. That's a bit of speculation on my part. However, based on what I've read, it's my understanding that the Orphic cult was nonviolent and they practiced vegetarianism. They didn't include any blood sacrifice in their rituals. All of those things were somewhat uncommon for the time. A little more trivia about them. The cypress tree, for instance, was sacred. To them, probably due to its association with death and funeral observances. The cypress represents longevity and was considered sacred to the god Hades. Carrying the wood or burning the incense was said to bring comfort in grief following the death of a loved one. In Egypt, they made coffins from it. As significant and widespread as the Orphic religion was, it had some fairly significant differences from the religious practices of the mainstream. Uh, the Orphics had their own scriptures, their own version of the theogony, that is, their own story about the creation of the universe and the gods. And it differed significantly from the typical Greek and Roman myths. The Orphic texts were considerably different from for instance, the theogony of Hesiod. 
They had a completely different creation story. But there's a lot of complexity and variations there which are difficult to sort out. The main thrust of the Orphic myths is centered around Dionysus. According to their myths, Dionysus was the son of Zeus and Persephone. There's a muddy family relationship there. In most stories, Zeus is Persephone's father. But there's also a strong suggestion that Hades and Zeus might have once been seen as a singular god. There's an early set of references to the Zeus of the underworld, though whether that's an epithet for Hades or a sign that Zeus had more dominion than later writers gave him, it's unclear. But for our purposes here, Suffice it to say that the Orphic myths state pretty clearly that Zeus and Persephone are the parents of Dionysus. In the Orphic accounts, Zeus lay with Persephone in the form of a snake, and Persephone gave birth to a son named Zagreus. In later writings, the child's name was changed to Dionysus. Now, According to the Orphic texts, Zeus names the boy as his complete and total heir, and he makes plans to leave Olympus completely. He's abdicating his throne because of Hera's rage over the boy's birth. Well, not so much his birth as his conception. But even though Zeus is planning on leaving, Hera is not going to be mollified so easily. It is at her instigation that the Titans murder, dismember, and consume the child. Now, this is a horrible crime. Not simply on its face value, but in the ancient world, the mutilation of a dead body, cannibalism, these were seen as horrible, horrible affronts and insults to the gods. They were a violation of every natural thing, let alone the murder of the son of Zeus. That alone demanded retaliation. And so, Zeus destroys the Titans with a thunderbolt, blasting them into ash, which scatters and settles over the earth and, in time, sparks the creation and birth of humanity. And so, the Orphics believed that, as a result, humanity is a hybrid of the Titans and Dionysus, the essence of whom both were contained in those ashes. So, according to the Orphics, from Dionysus we get our immortal divine soul, and from the Titans we get our corruptible physical form, that which holds our divine soul in bondage. In the numerous conflicting texts, the Orphics tell of how eventually Dionysus was reborn, though the accounts are varied and contradictory about the specific mechanism in which that rebirth occurred. There is an interesting parallel to some of our mainstream religions. More on that in a minute. The cult of Orpheus was a very popular one, and it spread far and wide from Greece to Egypt and eventually, some say, to a little backwater patch of land bordering a particularly salinated body of water. But I digress. Another crucial departure 
was how the Orphic cult viewed death and the afterlife. As with nearly any religion, the subject of death was a crucial part of Orphism. The Orphics believed that the divine soul was caught in what they called a grievous cycle of metempsychosis, that is, a cycle of birth, death, and rebirth, which we would more commonly call reincarnation now. The word metempsychosis literally means transmigration of the soul. Another term for it is palingenesis, from which the Christians got the concept of being born again. This will be relevant later, I promise. For the Orphics, they believed that the soul went through this cycle, spinning on the wheel of birth and rebirth for a time, though it's not entirely clear what the Orphics believed the ultimate purpose of the cycle was, nor what or who determined when a soul was ready to be released from it. It's a bit muddy. Some text offered a more, shall we say, familiar view of what happens after you died. Some Orphics believed in a literal hell, one remarkably similar to that of the Judeo-Christian faith. Eternal fire, wailing and gnashing of teeth, all that. And it's because of this and other reasons that many scholars suggest that the Orphic religion had a major influence on early Christianity. Some go further. Some claim that Christianity is itself an offshoot of Orphism. I can't speak to the validity of that statement, though the parallels are interesting, and to my amateur eye, I see some signs of the ripple effect that I've talked about before on this show, little echoes traveling between mythologies, bouncing off of each other to create more stories. That's nothing new, and from my perspective, it makes for fascinating study. One thing I can confirm is that it was common in early Christianity for artists, writers, and even theologians to equate Orpheus with Jesus. It's not that much of a stretch. You have a demigod who travels to the underworld to rescue the dead. A spiritual leader who teaches out in the open countryside, traveling with an ascetic, nomadic group of male followers. An individual with the power to perform miracles and wonder, to command the stones to sing his praises. A spiritual leader who begins his ministry by crossing a river and heading into the wilderness. A figurehead who is physically destroyed for their faith by the opposition party and in the process becoming a transcendent symbol of sacrifice. Back in the first millennia after the death of Christ, it was not uncommon for Jesus to be depicted in artwork playing a lyre out in the open in a forest glade or a field surrounded by attentive animals, the trees bending down to give ear to his song. Sound familiar? What about this? A rustic youth in the wild surrounded by his flock of sheep playing his lyre and singing to them of the glories of God to lull them into peaceful obedience. That would be David, according to some, direct ancestor of the child who would become Jesus Christ. 
David was the father of Solomon, a king long associated with secret occult mysteries, much like how the Orphics saw their leader. Now, if you look at ancient depictions of Christ, one feature stands out. No, not the beard. That radiant golden disc surrounding his head, spreading outward from the crown to frame his face in divine light. A halo. Eventually it became a cartoon, but what it was, what it began as, was nothing more than a symbol. A symbol of the sun. And it was appropriated from pre-existing mythologies. It's a solar disk that, symbolically, connects Jesus to the god Apollo. The god of the sun. Apollo. The father of Orpheus. Unless, of course, you adhere to the Ogaris lineage of Orpheus, that he was nothing more than the son of a Thracian king who just also happened to be a minor wine deity. Wine being a beverage, I feel compelled to point out, which figured prominently in Jesus' own mythology, particularly at his first recorded miracle when he turned water into wine. At a wedding, no less. In the book, The Last Temptation of Christ by Niklos Kazantzatskis, there are some interesting parallels to be made, again, between Orpheus and Jesus, Eurydice and Mary Magdalene. The final temptation of Christ in the book has remarkable parallels to the story of Orpheus attempting to rescue his bride from the torments of the underworld and, in the process, very nearly losing himself as well. Now, Kazantzatkis was a Greek author and a scholar with an impressive list of literary works and translations, including Zorba the Greek, and he translated a little book called The Odyssey. It's my understanding that he also did a translation of Dante's Inferno. So he was fairly familiar with the underworld. Now, Dante is an interesting connection. In the first book of Dante's Inferno, Orpheus is there in limbo with the great poets and other figures whose only barrier to paradise is having been born before the sacrifice of Christ was available to all. According to Dante, quote, they did not sin. So, I guess it's all in the timing. There in limbo, and keep in mind, in Dante's vision of the underworld, limbo is a specific locale. It's less a state of being and more an actual physical location. There in limbo, Dante and his guide Virgil, who is himself an inhabitant of limbo, they hear the sighs of the dead, these shadowy exhalations not of agony and torment, but rather the sighs of sadness a gentle disappointment at their lot in life, or, well, their afterlife. But for a twist of fate, a timing of their birth or death, those in limbo might have attained paradise rather than exile in that flat, a gray place. Orpheus is there in limbo, the veil of sighs. Having no hope, we live in longing. Limbo is a bleak, gray meadow where the unfortunate dead wander together in little groups. Despite what some of them have said about him, 
Orpheus is hanging out with some of the great poets of antiquity, Virgil, Homer, Horace, and our old friend Ovid. There's a little echo of the Orphic cult there, a rock star being followed around by groupies even in the afterlife. No mention is made of Eurydice, at least not in Dante. Apparently, he didn't think she deserved a place with her husband. Maybe she didn't want one. There's a long list of gods and demigods who cheat death or conquer the underworld. Orpheus with his wife trailing behind him in the shadows. Jesus descending, the shattering of the gates and the harrowing of hell. Heracles' rescue of Alcestis. Hermod attempting to rescue Baldur and failing, just like Orpheus. There's something about the gods probably something about humanity as well, some people just won't accept their fate. They have to make a play to defeat death or cheat Hades. They have to try and steal back a precious life from Thanatos. Maybe it's a power play, a challenge that they need to overcome. But I assume that on some level, in saving someone else, they're also saving themselves. And what if they fail? When they fail, I should say. See him there, Orpheus, that most wretched of husbands, weeping on the outskirts of the underworld, everything lost, his wife dissolving like shadows before his very eyes as the sun, his father, rises. I know I was harsh in my assessment of Orpheus in our last episode, and I probably still am in this one, but the sheer pathos of that image, the fallen demigod brought low by his own failure, mourning over his wife a second time, plagued by guilt and sorrow, sick with the knowledge that both times he was the one to blame. It is ultimately what he prophesied. A double destruction. I've known people who've lost their spouse to accident and disease and misfortune. Just a few months back, news came that a friend of ours came home to find his husband had committed suicide. There'd been a history, apparently, more than one previous attempt, but how do you not take it all on yourself? The blame, the guilt. How do you not, like Orpheus, look back? I can't imagine. So, it's no surprise that Orpheus didn't just pick himself up, wipe his eyes, and create a Match.com profile. I mean, who would? No one. By all accounts, everyone I know who's ever lost someone, anyone close to them, well, something like that, it changes you forever. Of course it does. It should. I've watched a handful of friends go through that loss, the loss of a spouse. Almost to a person, they have to reinvent themselves afterwards. It's a slow, gradual process sometimes excruciating, certainly heartbreaking to witness, but it's almost as if it is a necessary part 
of the healing process. When you have someone there in your life, someone who fits perfectly into you and you into them, when they're gone, it hurts too much to try and be yourself anymore. Even if you're Orpheus, he went from being a rock star to what? A guru, maybe? A religious leader, an influential voice? A teacher whose message would resonate through the ages, lasting for hundreds, if not thousands of years? Maybe. He was still Orpheus when he returned, from the underworld, of course. But he was also not Orpheus. Not anymore. We don't know how long he went on after his return from the realm of Hades and Persephone. The stories are unclear. We don't know how long he lived, though there is a sense that it might have been quite a number of years, long enough at least for that following to build up around him, his cult essentially becoming his new fan club. It was long enough for his reputation to shift, an excruciating evolution from rock star to teacher. It was also long enough for some enmity to build up between his followers and one of the other cults in the region. Some who were resentful of the Orphic practices and prohibitions, resentful of being shut out, of having their god appropriated, resentful maybe of having to compete for the hearts of the faithful. Orpheus stuck around long enough for all of that long enough to even make some enemies. But we'll get to that in our next episode. And that's our show. Thanks very much for listening. As always, I am grateful to each and every one of you for listening to the show, participating on the show's Facebook page, and also for telling your friends about it. We'll be back, actually quite soon, with a fill-in episode. And then following that, of course, the last episode in the Orpheus story. The music in this show this week is by Wes Covey of The 10,000 Things. It's from the album Spirit in All, and you can download it on sacredmusic.bandcamp.com. And because Wes is quite clever, sacred music is spelled S-A-C-R-E-D-M-U-S-I-C-K. That's sacredmusic.bandcamp.com. Wes is one of the good guys. Go give him a listen and throw him a few dollars. And as always, thank you for listening. Take care of each other and may your gods bless you.
Find Your Gods is written, performed, and produced by T.M. Camp. Now you know who to blame. Unless otherwise noted, all of the content on today's show is copyright T.M. Camp and may not be used without his express written permission. Failure to comply is a violation of international copyright law and terrible Terrible things will happen to you that I don't have time to get into right now, but trust me, they're really quite bad, and they involve snakes and, and evil women and, and evil women with snakes in their hair, but you don't know that it's hair until it's snakes, and then you've turned the stone, and life is really quite bad for you. Visit us online at findyourgods.com, or you can follow us on facebook.com slash findyourgods, twitter.com slash findyourgods. We're also on Instagram, Tumblr, Pinterest, whatever else has come out this week that everyone says we should be on. We're nothing more than a windsock in the breeze of social media. Come, come and blow with us.